always sing the intro like that. <laughs> and and Steve welcome to the podcast. podcast. Very good to hear. That's what's going at the beginning. <laughs> I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Video Game Developers. Uh, today I am uh, very excited to be in the office of Tim Schaefer of That's Double Point Double Productions. You do look excited. I am thrilled, sir. <laughs> uh, I'm being very serious now. I like how we all laughs, and then we press record, and it's, let's talk about games. This is a business-like podcast, yes. sir. Uh, no, but thank you for having me uh, to Double Fine. Welcome to San Francisco. I appreciate that. The Game Developers Conference. Yes, uh, yeah. I, I'm here during GDC, um, and GDC is, is at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, and uh, Double Fine is, I don't know, is, I, I walked over here in like 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so, convenience. A stone's throw, <laughs> if you're really strong. <laughs> I I don't think anyone in Moscone Center right now is that strong. That's <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, th- thank you for having me here. I, I just want to, you know, I want to talk through... The ridiculous amount of stuff that you've done in the industry because you're one of, old. one of the oldest. <laughs> yes, one of the oldest. They're older people than me. Have you met Ron Gilbert? He's older than me. I have. I met him in this office. He was very displeased to be he's looking grumpy. at me. It's grumpy. He's a grumpy, uh, a grumpy gamer. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean that's that's <laughs> where that's where on the uh, on the on the old pod on the old pod. Yeah, he would talk. He talks. Which game started? He rambles, Grandpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He rambles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and that's that's kind of um, that's where it that's where it started for you, right? Because I mean, you obviously yeah. uh, your early work was at LucasArts, and your earliest work was like directly with with Ron. Right? Yeah, he was. We were hired as scumlets, which was <laughs> like um, I think they just gave us that name, so we'd never ask for a raise. <laughs> uh, you're a scumlet. Do you realize what the average uh, salary is for a scumlet? It's not much. Uh, it was just someone who worked in scum. And yeah. had no power. It was very small. Well, and you, because you you started at LucasArts like straight out of school, right? 1989. Yeah. The year the wall came down. Very <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> right, when Reagan won, won the war, whatever that Yeah, when Reagan went over and punched the wall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you, what, so you, so you went to school at like, Berkeley, right? Is that right? Oh, did you see Berkeley? Oh, did you see yeah. Santa Cruz? Did you see Berkeley? And then in the Berkeley, like, career lab, career center, they had, we go through binders of paper job listings, and there was one for Lucas. Arts, which I was so excited about because I loved um, all the Atari games they had made. Yeah. Uh, like Wallblazer and, and um, Rescue of Fractals and stuff. And I was not familiar with their graphic adventures. Like, I did not know about them in 1989. Yeah. And well, because they hadn't released much up to that point. They'd released uh, Maniac they'd Mansion, Maniac Mansion right? and Zach McCracken, and they just put out the, the adventure game for the third movie, third indie movie. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did an action movie, action game, and an adventure game. Right, which is not common. To do. Like we're not sure what genre would work for this. Well, it's got story and it's got punching, so <laughs> two games, obviously. Um, so, 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 are you saying that you and Ron started around the same time? Oh no, he was there. Okay. He had started like he had done. He'd written like extensions to Basic or some. Uh, I think it was Basic, where they were um, like optimized graphics commands for your Commodore sixty four, I believe. Okay. And uh, Lucas hired him to do. It was maybe um, the Commodore sixty four work for one of the earlier games, and then he 
said, how about we make Maniac Mansion? Yeah, because that was, that was my... So as someone who is a nerd and a fan, but doesn't do research, uh, <laughs> my, my memory was that, like, uh, Ron, it's actually, like, the scum engine by Ron Get like he yeah, programmed yeah. scum, he right? That. Yeah, so so he was he was there real or like laying the groundwork for the stuff. You that... say I think the whole podcast is research, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. You wanna save it, you wanna do it all on mic. Yep. I wanna like do some research before and pretend I knew all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's no, all they, happening they, real. They, I'm learning, you're watching Steve Gaynor learn. The about listeners are, are experiencing this in real time. Yeah, that he he made that like he was um into making um uh, you know, compilers and um Less analyzers, like the hardcore programmer stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where Scum came from. Yeah, and so so when you came on, was your first stuff on Monkey Island? Is that right? Yeah. So he had done Manic Mansion already, and he, they'd made Scum, and they'd made um, those three games, and um, they had this idea that they were going to be, you know, now that they had this engine, they were going to be kind of not cranking them out, but putting out a lot of these cinematic-type adventure games. Sure. And they had this engine, and they all had ideas. You know, Noah had ideas, Noah Falstein and Ron Gilbert and sure. um, Eric Woolmunder there, and all those people were going to make games, but they need someone to actually do all the nitty-gritty wiring up of all those great ideas they had, so they hired the Scumlets. Right. Four, four programmers right out of college. Which means cheap. I remember I got like I was so excited though. I got twenty seven thousand dollars a year. That was so exciting. Hey man, that and was that's that is that was more that's than in that nineteen eighty nine money. That's I know. Like, well, that was my that was that was my first industry salary in two thousand four. So, <laughs> but I was in QA. I, I did not have a, I did not have a CS yeah, degree. Mamas don't let your babies grow up to be developers. <laughs> um, and. Uh, and they put us in this room, and they started Scum University, they called it, but they taught us Scum, and they had some art from Steve Purcell, who was there, yeah. and it was years before Sam Max came out, but he had, he just made some mock-up rooms, it turned out to be Sam and Max's office, and Sam <laughs> and Max, and they, and, and they gave us some uh, art for like making the TV flash with static and stuff, and we'd learn how to use Scum, and Ron would come yeah. and teach us a little bit every day, and then we'd have the afternoons just mess around. And we just did this crazy stuff in Scum and um, used all the uh, art assets we could, which meant taking them from, like, Last Crusade, which means a lot of swastikas came in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's figure out I really wish we had a guys. build of those games. Yeah, because, like, Sam and Max and swastikas and Nazis and, and two-headed squirrels from uh, Zach McCracken. And, um, so we would just play with it every day, like, play with the language. And then Ron is like, I think you and Dave... Grossman should come work on this game. Mutiny on Monkey Island hmm. that he was working on. Yeah. yeah. Then that that era of stuff was was really uh, it was part of my 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 gaming upbringing, my formative mm-hmm. years. Because uh, Maniac Mansion on the NES was like my bridge into PC gaming. You're just and pointing out that you're younger than me. Like, well, this, this okay. So you have. Deciphered the entire point yeah. of this, which is just like well, every opportunity. Tim is old. <laughs> I am young. Tim is old. Goodbye. Out with the bad air. <laughs> Steve Gaynor, the future of games. And Tim Schafer, the past. I just realized that us sitting here together, it seems really suspicious, almost as if this was a PR stunt created by Casey Lynch. Promote Midnight City. The mastermind of Midnight City. <laughs> how did he even get us together without him being here to make it happen? That's how fucking good he is. Yeah. He clearly planted we, the idea. And we feel like it was our idea yeah. to talk about God, it. he's good. He's so good. Uh, no, I mean... What are you it's, about? It's, oh, you played... I played games. I played video games as a child. 
Yeah, me too. Um, no, yeah, I, I played Manic Mansion on the NES. I got um, to work on that version for like a couple of days. Because <laughs> Ron had already made it, and they are porting it to the um, the NES, and all the object tags were slightly off, because mm-hmm. they had been just converted from the Commodore. And the, the resolution was lower, so we just had to go in and like bump, oh, the microwave is not tagged properly, and push that around. And so... <laughs> Sounds like fun. My name appears in the credits for like a couple of days of pushing stuff around, basically art tech work. Yeah. And so then if you look at my... Um, credits, like a movie game, it says my first game was Maniac Mansion, which um, Ron Gilbert really enjoys seeing <laughs> whenever like, uh, my credits are given in the conference. Jim Schaefer Maniac Mansion, and always, he likes that joke. Loves it. Yeah. Makes him just feel warm. For the record, Ron Gilbert made Maniac Mansion. Oh, you, so you made Maniac Mansion. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. I made that. <laughs> Ron who? Uh, no, but, and, and so, you know, I, I played it on, on Nintendo, and my friend was like, well, there are other games like this, because you like Maniac Mansion a lot, but they're on my dad's computer. So I played, like, <laughs> Sierra games, and, yeah, Monkey Island, mm-hmm. and from that, and discovered uh, uh, Tim and Max, and, and going forward from there. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like... It seems like it must have been a really interesting time to be working in that format because, like, graphic adventures were, you know, they were escaping from being text adventures and from text parsers and sort of... I mean, you were there through the whole evolution of, you know, the, the Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island, what, like, is it nine verbs? I think 12? 15. Okay. Um, Don't forget fix. Turn okay. on, turn off, push, pull, fix, use... What is separate, think, open, and close? Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. I'm trying to figure out if there's ever been a puzzle in an adventure game where you closed a closed door to solve a puzzle. Yeah, you did it. No, you closed an open door. Oh yes, to find Largo's hidden thing behind. The yeah, the, but you never open the, an open door or close a closed door. Well, I think in the history of adventure games, that would be I would terrible like to find design. It. What do you want to? Well, but that's somebody, it's like you open a door that's already open. You open a smaller door on kind, it. Well, like, it's kind of a philosophical question. No, that's what it would be. It would be like a little doggy door. <laughs> well, because I think a designer sitting there with that game had this limited interface. We only have these verbs. What can I do? That can, let me test the boundaries of this interface. Well, I can open an open door. I mean, that's, that gets into this whole discussion that brings all the way to Broken Age. It's like the simplification of the verbs. Right. And people, people sometimes... You know, we would fight against that. We'd have a, um, design meetings where we talk about, okay, let's simplify and look at Let's simplify the interface. So go from those 15 verbs to, like, nine. Right. And, um, and then after that, people are like, let's, we can get rid of more of these verbs because you don't need to open and close and use. If you use a door, if it's open, it's closed, it's closed. Right. And, um, and it even occurred to us back then, it's like, if we keep doing this, we're going to end up with just one verb, which is use. Yeah, it's just click on. And that seemed like, oh, well, that would be dumbing down adventure games too much. We shouldn't do that. Uh, people really appreciate having this choice, but that's what's happened. I mean, that's because it all the things you're saying. It's not interesting to close a closed door. Right. It's not interesting to open an open door, and um, you know, y- you might want to look at the phone before you pick it up and use it, but you probably just want to pick up the phone and use it. Yeah. So it's it's some some amount of streamlining, but it leads to more focus on the interesting interactions as opposed to all the. Um, I mean, it was even a lot of work on Broken Age with that simpler interface to kind of, you have to come up with reactions for everything. Like, every object used on every inner, you know, everything you can use it on yeah. at any game state in the game. So that's a lot of stuff to write, and a lot of them were really dumb, because no one cares what happens if you use a crochet hook on a 
uh, stump. Right. But maybe they do. Actually, that might uh, be carve something. In the, yeah, like, but anyway, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking log, uh, so that must yeah. be a thing. If you, if you keep going down there, there's a lot of just, oh, these are really, why would someone do that? And often your dialogue turns out like, why the hell <laughs> would I do that? That's the stupidest idea. But imagine back when there were 15 verbs, yeah. and that, you just, you end up working on all the stuff that you knew. Not just would no one see, but it was boring if they found it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's a lot of generic stuff just like, I can't open that. I can't open that. You know, whatever. Though, I mean, some of that stuff ends up being... That's where some of the joy of those games came out of as well, yeah. right? When you hit stuff like that. But a lot of times you're just like, this is this is meaningless. What I'm writing is mean no one is ever going to turn on this bucket. <laughs> Actually, turn on was always the one where we put all the dirty jokes. Because after a while you're like, how would I turn on a bucket? Oh, <laughs> it's, it's so many dirty ideas coming to mind right immediately, right? So, so you, so you transitioned in there from a scumlet. Someone. It sounds like it was basically like a scripter, essentially. Or, That's what it was. Yeah. We didn't know. I mean, we were using a scripting engine, you know, scum and and yeah, and uh, transitioned into what? Are you, well, you went from there to like uh, designing and writing stuff, right? Like, I mean, well, you were... we started. We, the the job title was called assistant designer slash mm-hmm. programmer. No, oh, I see. So. From the early days when Ron brought us up to Monkey Island, we would sit in his office and we would brainstorm puzzles. He already had the basic story, the layout, the secret of Monkey Island, if you will, all laid out. And we'd be filling in kind of the holes of like, okay, what, 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 what do we need a puzzle for getting off this island? And we'd brainstorm a lot. So we would assist with the design, and then we would write all this dialogue. And I'd, um, we were upstairs, it was the same same kind of vibe as the Scum University, where we were just messing around all day long. But now we had real art from the Steve Purcell, Mike Ebert, yeah. the artists downstairs. And um, we were putting it together, and uh, I tell a story, and I don't, I wonder if it's, I think it's led to a mis- There's a misconception out there that Monkey Island was a serious game, and then Dave and I made it funny. Mm-hmm. But it was always a comedy um, game. And it's just that what I thought is that we were... I thought we were writing temporary dialogue, so because we would just write, like... <laughs> Stupid, um, snarky, twenty-year-old, you know, in jokes. Yeah. And then we would make fun of ourselves. That's what the back of the box says. That thing about cryptic in jokes because we're like parroting ourselves, making fun of ourselves for making so many in jokes. And it was that level of like self-indulgent in jokes. Anyway, we were doing all that, and I thought Ron was going to come up, and then he was going to lay in the professionally authored, um, right, final dialogue. Yeah. Like, no, no, it's great. It's, it's, it's going to be like this. Yeah, it's what he's had in mind the whole time. It's, so. uh, it's pretty good when that happens in a lot of cases. Well, I, I think that is what let us do anything funny at all is because we weren't worried about it. Yeah. Like, if I had sat down, that was the first... I mean, I would, I'd always wanted to be a writer. Like, in college, I took creative writing, and I really thought I'd write short stories like Kurt Vonnegut did while I had this boring desk job doing database programming and stuff. And uh, it took me a long time to realize I was getting paid to write. Like, oh, I guess I am a writer. Yeah. I guess I got paid to write all through the last few years. Um, but... Uh, what was it uh, you're talking about oh, uh, the I, secret of Monkey I Island I would have sat down and I would have thought so hard about how these pirates should talk and Right. I would look up like pirate lingo of the day and I, mean, I did read uh, Treasure Island that was my one we watched Errol Flynn movies and I did yeah. Treasure Island but I was I would have worried so much about it I never would have output anything and that was that whole project like learning experience was learning not to be afraid of stupid stuff yeah, well, and just kind of learning not to be too self-conscious when you're writing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just generally when you're writing, you just kind of have to be like, oh, f- fuck it, I'm just, I'll write it out, 
I, maybe this is a stupid idea, but if you don't write yeah. all the way through it, then yeah, you'll never write anything. And that's right. In college, that's where I learned about free writing. Do you do free writing a lot? Uh, I mean, I, I know what you mean. It's not part of my. It's something we, even my in practice. eighth grade, our teacher made us sit down. Everybody has to write, and the rules: you can't stop writing for two minutes. Right. And you just start writing all this crazy stuff, repeating the same word over and over again, and then pretty soon you start to start to have thoughts. And it has some of the same verbal, I don't know what the mechanism is, but you know when you're brainstorming with people and you have ideas you just couldn't have by yourself, yeah. even if they were your own ideas, like someone says something and you're like, that's stupid, but what about this? And you're like, why didn't I have that idea when I was sitting home all creatively blocked? And it's like, something about verbalizing ideas makes your brain, it just opens up other channels. So if you sit there with your notebook and you write, and you just write, 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 pretty soon it's amazing that you have ideas that you weren't having the moment before. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and having to talk through the thing that's blocking you or mm-hmm. the problem, I think it 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 makes you look at it differently than when you're just focusing on the... I mean, it's like when... Uh, there's, a, there's a word for it in programming, what? Uh, the thing with the duck? Where it's like you've hit a bug and you can't... The thing with the duck. You don't know about the thing with the duck? The I'm sure you duck. do. You were a programmer. Um, there was a... So, like... I encountered it because as like a level designer, scripter, I would have some bug and it's like I this is supposed this door's supposed to be opening when you hit this trigger and I can't figure it out the fucking why and so I bring another person over and you're like, look at this, I have it set up right and the trigger the duck? Uh well Or they are a duck. Well the duck comes later. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so, so you bring another human being whose time is valuable and could be doing something else, and you say, look at this thing. I have it set up right, and it's not working. I put the trigger, and you touch the trigger, and then the door should open, but then and then you notice, oh, it's because I didn't flag this one variable. Okay, like, talking through it to you showed me how to solve this problem. Thank you, bye. And so the, the thing that uh, some programmers do, they will put like a rubber ducky on their desk, and when they hit a problem like that, they will explain it to the duck... So I've never heard about this. Yeah, I've, I've worked with programmers that have the, the yellow rubber ducky on their desk. That is... That this is this so idea has a Wikipedia page. If I was walking through the halls and I saw someone talking to a rubber duck on their desk... You've seen weirder stuff than that at studios you've worked at. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have. I've seen your office. I wonder if they would... It sounds like a theoretical thing that I can't imagine someone actually would do that, but... Um, you know, if anyone would... Well, I'm going to be on the lookout for these ducks. I'm actually going to go look for ducks. Okay. Go, go on a duck hunt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, just like in a weird, like, fanboyish way, it's like, I, I I, wonder what it was like. Like, what are your what are your memories of just, like, what LucasArts was like right in the middle of all of that? It seems like you guys had an incredible amount of freedom. You were just making up new IP uh-huh. all the time. You were just uh-huh. like, we'll uh-huh. make a game about yeah, dog I mean, and a bunny, and we'll make... Pirates and a biker, like it, it, I don't know. <laughs> were, were, pirates and biker. Were, were check, they check, check. <laughs> Were they just like go for it? Did you not have very much oversight? It was like, weird. I mean, it, it was like um, it may seem like it was this crazy, you know, magical, happy time, and it it was, it was. I had to say it was. I mean, I could, and it, and I we knew we were we knew we were really spoiled at the time because I was just right out of college and I was working at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, and there was like. Gourmet food at lunch for three dollars and stuff, and I was like, I guess this is what the workplace is like. <laughs> and um, somehow I knew that I'd lucked into something, and then they kicked us off the ranch, and then it was all just violence playing. Sad story after that, like we we're little orphans. But um, for it was just it was really great. But there's a reason for that um, freedom, and also that explosion of creative ideas. Part of it was just that we were prevented from using the Star Wars license, so we had all the money of Lucas behind us, but we couldn't make licensed games. 
And I thought this was where I thought this was just because George wanted to. Um, that's George Lucas. He was oh, oh, employer. I don't know if I dropped that already. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the, I thought it was because George wanted us to stay. I always heard he wanted us to make our own success on our own terms, not relying on him. Yeah. Because I thought he was going to sell us. Because like he sold Pixar. He originally had Lucasfilm Computer Division, and he sold it off as Pixar. And so I thought that's why, but Ron told me later, he's like, no, 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 it's because Kenner, Hasbro, or Parker Brothers had the <laughs> game rights to Star Wars, that's oh, why. Wow. And I was like, oh, that's a much more logical reason. <laughs> but they told us, like, you can't use it, but you got to just stay small, don't lose any money, and just try and be the best, you know. And so they just, it was such a great, weird, like, thing that should never have existed. Like, this anomaly where, like, here's all this money, and like, you guys have to make up your own stuff. <laughs> And, <laughs> and and you have this technology already built, the scum engine, and you can just kind of, it's all really just about creating new content, whatever yeah. weird worlds you can dream up. And so, um, I mean, a lot of it was like the force of Ron's personality, like he just kind of does what he wants to do, and he's so grumpy about it that people are afraid to, you know. <laughs> so he, he, he was kind of, um, had a lot of influence and power at that time, he's like, I'm going to make this monkey, this game. And you know he had a picture. I'm gonna people, make so. this monkey game. I'm gonna make this monkey Gosh, game. And everyone's like, "Do you want to tell him not to?" No, I don't. But I mean, it, um, he could tell the story a lot better. But uh, and then someone asked him. Someone recently said, "So monkey was such a big hit, you made monkey too." And he's like, "No, monkey I didn't sell it much at all. We just made monkey too because I just started it." <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. And then I wasn't done with the whole monkey thing yet. I had more pirate ideas. And then he told management, he's like, "I think Tim and Dave are ready for their own game. They should do a game next." And I was like, like but awesome. um, it was also different in that there was no internet and there was no, like, um, it's like right now we're always facing, like, I feel like we're, like, looking into this hot jet exhaust engine all day long, which is the internet just blasting us with, like, a lot of love and good things and just tons of hate, just nasty things. Just for this, this sense that, you know, you can tweet and hundreds of thousands of people can talk about what you're thinking about. This yeah. is not the way it was in the 90s. Yeah. There are magazines. And, like, Johnny Wilson would write a review of your game, and that was, like, you know, and you had GC, which you yeah. go to, like, in San Jose, and it was, like, 50 people. It was very small, and, um, but there was the first one was, like, what, in the very early 90s or something? I was, yeah, the one in Chris Crawford's living room. I was in a really small one where the entire, if we watched this movie, um, The Wizard of Menlo Park, I think, it's, like, stop-motion kind of animation thing. Yeah. And I remember Noah Falstein got this movie, and we all watched it in the lobby of the hotel, the game developers conference. (laughs) We all got together and watched this movie together, and I was like, that's, those are the days, crazy. And so, um, uh, that was the, as, as close as it came to having, like, a, a worldwide audience for your thoughts. Well, but something that, that I appreciated about that era of LucasArts as a player was that, um, there was more of, like the, the the people making the games and the process and, and everything was more exposed to the players because whenever you bought a LucasArts game, you got a copy of the adventure in it, <laughs> and you could subscribe to the adventure, so you didn't have to buy a game every <laughs> four times a year to get all the the issues. And I did that uh, because like you 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 buy these games and you're like, oh, there's other games like this from these same people and here's like yeah. an interview with one of the guys that's making mm-hmm. the game that's going to come out next year and that sounds cool and uh, you can buy your 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 shirts and whatever yeah. but it was it was I think more of a view into the studio and like the people that made the game than you mm-hmm. normally got uh, at that time because it was a culture like NDP throw on the word they throw on the word culture a lot but I mean it was this really unique culture and it was kind of like um, compared to a college campus where you have these grad students and professors 
you know, and Ron was like one of the professors, and Dave and I were like grad students, sort of. And then Hal Barwood was another professor, and he had like Sean and Mike or other, other um, uh, grad students. And you know, you're kind of there. You know, this, I think this is Hal who told me this. Is like you know, and a professor is just trying to create more academics who believe what he believes. So they're trying to like get these grad students to like support his theories. And it was kind of interesting. It was like. Because we were all really supportive of each other, but also competitive, and like I think Ron and Brian Moriarty and all these Hal and these guys wanted to make a game that showed up, you know, what they could do, and it was so yeah. competitive. But it was also like we shared the technology and a lot of ideas. We played each other's games and gave feedback and stuff like that. So it was just really great. Um, you really just uh, creatively like fulfilling and uh, an awesome time that I try to recreate with Double Fine. And that's yeah. one of the reasons we did the Amnesia Fortnite is like I want to have this feeling again of having like um, a creative campus. Yeah, multiple people doing amazing things and inspiring each other to do that kind of stuff. And it and not just being thing. one monolithic project that everybody's yeah. shouldering into, but yeah, there's like all these different things going on, which yeah, seems fantastic. Um, so so yeah, it must have been like what was that meeting like? What, what, what do you remember when the moment when somebody was like, "All right, so you're going to be in charge of the game now, you and Dave." Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was terrifying, and I think that's one of the reasons Dave and I worked together. I don't, I'm trying to remember the exact chain of events. I think we could, we were talking about, we could have maybe even done our own game, but we were, it's terrifying to have someone be like, "Hey, you can make any game you want. Do it. What is it? Pitch it." You're like, "What?" Um, um. So in some ways, we kind of fell back on let's pair up and. Uh, Someone downstairs suggested doing a sequel to Maniac Mansion. Let's yeah. do, just do that. Which, if you think about it, is the kind of it is kind of a safe bet to make. Like, instead of do, we weren't really doing a new IP. We were like, let's take this last IP and let's yeah. make a sequel to it. So um, it wasn't all just like crazy risk taking yeah. and yeah. Uh, stuff. But, so um, yeah. and Ron had written up like a two page. Well, let's let's about note. It. Let's note for a direct sequel. It's a pretty crazy yeah. <laughs> set of concepts. You know, it's, it's not just Maniac Mansion with a new mansion. <laughs> you yeah. know? There's time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was still a pretty big leap, I would say, within... Yeah, and but that's, I think it's good to remember how scary it was to lead my first project and how much safer I felt knowing I had a co-project leader, yeah. Dave, and knowing that we were working with this world that had already been created. Yeah. Especially just, just out of college, because I remember, I, remember I, I came up with some of the worst ideas ever. I mean, I, don't think, I just remember like, okay, I'll try it with a game. And I remember driving home thinking about, people were talking about the butterfly effect, because that was a very new topic back then, mm-hmm. chaos and all that stuff. And, oh, like um, chaos theory, like, like, like if, you know, the butterfly. Park and yeah, it was kind of like, okay. Water droplets. So it's like, oh yeah, if a butterfly flies its wings, that can cause this to happen, that to happen. Pretty soon you have a typhoon in this other country and stuff like that. Yeah. And my idea was, okay, you've got to find that butterfly and kill it. Or something like right. that. I remember thinking, okay, that's, I'm going to pitch, I can't pitch that game. That's the worst <laughs> idea. <laughs> And I still feel that way. Like, so one of the reasons I never really wrote short stories because it was like, okay, sit down and write a short story. Okay, idea one. And like, a, like just like, wait, who do I write it about? Like, this that kind of blank paper. Yeah. Problem is really hard to get around, and all the things that I've done, like, they come a different way. They don't really come down from just sitting down, like, filling out a blank piece of paper. It's yeah. been like working off of like something you kind of um, work off of some little grain, uh, the soup stone, you know, in yeah. the center of the soup. You know, in this case, it was Manic Mansion. Like, let's start from there. Yeah. And I was just like, ah, oh. I'm touching. Like, you're in the dark room, and finally, you like, you can touch something. And hey, okay, we'll start from here. Yeah. And go from there. Well, because yeah, for my for my whole career up to Gone Home, I had only worked on expansion packs, direct sequels, DLC. You know, so it was all 
branching off to something established. You know, and it's like, okay, you can be creative within an established frame. You're not just totally floating free. And then even with Gone Home, what the game was and the story started from very, like, practical mechanical constraints. Of, like, oh. we're three people. We've worked on these first-person immersive games before. Mm-hmm. We, I guess, are going to make a really small one of those that's mm-hmm. just about the story and not shooting stuff. So, okay, what... Is, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like finding the form it takes from, yeah, a starting point that is kind of established for you some mm-hmm. other way, whatever way it has to have Bratmobile in it. It's got to justify having Bratmobile in it because I really like Bratmobile. <laughs> and luckily, it all worked out. It all worked out, out. yeah. Good job. Um, but yeah, so, so, so you had... This this sort of like uh, uh, cause and effect like rippling uh, yeah. through in this case time uh, idea yeah. and then that collided with Maniac Mansion. And well, that was in Ron's originally had a two page thing like if I'm going to do a sequel to Maniac, this is what I do. I do a time travel thing, <laughs> and so he had that much of it in it and um, kind of that first scene, the idea of going back and uh, the kids coming back to the mansion. And then we started brainstorming. Ron was in the first brainstorming session. The Noah Falstein was in there. And then Ron went off to start Humongous. Yeah. And Dave and I took it on from there. Because it uh, got all wacky because we wanted to make a cartoon. <laughs> well, because it, it is very much about the whole, like, you do something 250 years ago, and mm-hmm. then in the future everything is, mm-hmm. is different. I, I mean, that was, that was a very unique um, premise for solving adventure game puzzles. You know, that mm-hmm. normally it is very much like it all takes place in a room and you have to get whatever the pulley so you can pull mm-hmm. the rope to open the door but mm-hmm. you know you, you had to kind of think uh, it was it was whatever the Star Wars chest you know you had to think on like was, multiple yeah that's Star Trek oh chess. sorry wow 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 don't tell George oh my god <laughs> about that that faux pas everyone knows Star Wars Trek is a hologram oh that's right I think they it's fight sitting on a rhombus no a Taurus no <laughs> I don't know um, it's flat uh, okay, so Star so, yeah. so you, you no, set out to make Star Trek. It's a fun setup, and that's the thing. It's like once you have something like that, that's a, kind of a unique setup. It just gives you so many ideas. Well, I mean, what do you remember about the process of of coming up with with the 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 order of operations the player had to do to solve these puzzles? Because, like, okay, so I I played these things when I was, you know, uh, so you're a lot older than me. Again, so so I played this these games. No longer a subtext. No longer subtext. When when laid on the table. When I was like I don't know in middle school or, or something, and and then just maybe like a year ago, I went back and I played back through Day of the Tentacle, oh. and I had internalized all the things you have to do, and like that shit, just like that sounded good. Uh, the <laughs> the puzzle solutions to halftime. <laughs> uh, the the puzzle solutions to classic LucasArts games. They just hook into your brain, and it's one of those things where it's it's like riding a bike. You're like, I haven't played Day of the Tentacle for ten years. Oh yeah, you have to get the scalpel to pop the clown to get the laugh box to win the mummy <laughs> beauty pageant. Obviously, um, but but they are these like incredibly convoluted. You know, you have to get the math book to make a horse go to sleep so you can get its teeth. And like, what did you start with? What had to be, what what the the end state had to be, and then work backwards through it, or like what was the process of like drawing all these lines into this crazy <laughs> fucking game? Well, I mean, they um, were just like, what would irritate people the most? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the funny, it's funny that you say you remember them because I've been playing Data Tentacle recently, and um, 
I had to look at pants. I and so, and we played the special edition of Monkey Island. Is like I don't remember this puzzle at all. I don't remember. And um, but it it is. I remember there was a, on the product support department. They you know they have to give a lot of hints to people. Call up the hint line, and yeah. someone um, they had written up this this one long puzzle chain of identicals because they just tell you that when you call up, you pay a dollar a minute to talk in the old days. Yeah. Um, I called them. I called them about Maniac Mansion. Oh, awesome. NES. Oh, awesome. Good. My parents weren't happy. No, I, I called at my neighbor's house. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Uh, his parents weren't and happy. And so, um, uh, so they would have these long chains because they're charging yeah, they, you by the minute. They, 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 so they printed one up, and when you read it, it does sound ridiculous. Like I got put dead cousin Ted in the bed with a friend. You know, like this is long, and yeah, and, I, and um. And then I saw the general manager at the time, uh, Kelly Flock, was walking by, and he read that. And I remember he, he pointed at it to me. He's like, and that's why no one buys adventure games. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, that's so stupid. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's our work. That's what we do. We make those chains. And um, people who like them like them. People who don't like them, maybe they don't. Um, figuring that out was always what we were doing for the 10 years we were at Lucas. We were like, why don't people play adventure games? <laughs> Because people who love adventure games, sometimes they think everyone loves them, but a lot of people just do not. Yeah. Like that. They don't like being stuck. And adventure games, you're kind of permanently stuck, and then you move really quick, and then you get stuck, and then move and quit. And right. Um, but uh, it was fun. I mean, we'd sit in the room. A lot of it was just, you'd sit in the room, like, all afternoon. Yeah. With people, uh, you know, and they're all really funny people to hang out with. I mean, Ron and Dave, and sitting in that room, just... And we had rules, but you just we talk about anything. Yeah. We talk about the Simpsons because it just started, um, sure. and just we talk about anything, and then kind of get back to the problem at hand. We got to figure out, um, like there'd be a certain a certain problem. It's like okay, Hoagie has to build a thing, and uh, you see how much I can remember. Obviously, <laughs> just a thing. Hoagie needed to charge a battery. We'll be like, okay, Laverne needs to get upstairs, so right. she needs a costume. How she can she how can she get a costume just to get a tentacle costume? Uh, is a player going to combine? Can they get suction cups somewhere and make them this thing? And it would be, so we're kind of thinking through those solutions. And it's like, what do we have? We have the founding fathers, access to the constitution. Right. I mean, they, I mean, it's logical. Each step on its own is kind of logical. And then you put them all together, it's just ridiculous. So you go back in time to change the American flag to look like a tentacle so right. you can wear it as a costume. <laughs> um, and I think we were just getting back to the whole thing about the internet not being there. We didn't really have this idea of like I've got to you know I've got to please the backers or any sort of idea of audience. Almost it was more like when Ron comes upstairs at four p.m. to read the dialogue we wrote. Yeah, I've got to make him laugh and I got to make Dave laugh and we got to make each other laugh in this room. So a lot of those things were just like what made us laugh yeah. at the time. We thought about it I was like oh changing the flag. <laughs> Did you guys do very much like playtesting like? Well, like, this, not not just QA, but having people like you know. There was obviously testers, but we would for um, most of the gameplay uh, feedback. We have these things called pizza orgies, where we have bringing our all our friends and family, and um, <laughs> and then we'd all have sex. What <laughs> is that weird? Um, no, we where's uh, the pizza coming? <laughs> order a bunch of pizza and we'd stay there all night. And everyone would play the game. Then yeah. we'd all sit in a room. And talk about it. And we still replicate that here in the mandatory cool. hour of fun that we have. We try to get everyone <laughs> in the room after playing and like just have this open thing where you can give feedback about the game. Yeah. But that's only like one or two during the course of McAllen. And you know, Ron would uh, like that. You know, creative campus thing. He get you know feedback from Noah or Eric or somewhere else. Or um, um, and then sometimes the testers would revolt. Uh, revolt. Yeah. Monkey Two. They wrote up 
you know, you have A bugs and B bugs and C bugs. Right. They wrote up the like fifteen page debug, <laughs> and it was called the big debug. And, like, look, and I think they'd just been testing the game for so long, and no one had really asked them for their opinion. Yeah. And they're like, "We're just going to give you a list of all our opinions." Like we think they're and they're, they had some issues with a fundamental structure of Monkey Two, and they had all these things. And we looked at it, and we're like, "Oh, these are really good ideas." So you know, we yeah. took a lot of those ideas. And I think, uh, and one of them, like, just testers will be like, after a while, they're like, I have to tell you this. I've been playing your game every single day. This is what I think. And they were the ones, I remember testers were the ones that came with the ideas. Ron was like, this, this, this is true. We have to do this one. There's no fireflies in the forest. So, like, in Monkey yeah. 1, they, like, there are fireflies in the forest because the testers revolted. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's great, right? Because they're the, they're the people that, the, the QA people are like, they're so deep in the game that they start to see what's missing that you gloss over. You're like, oh yeah, the forest is the forest. But then they've been in that forest for hundreds of hours. And then, why aren't there any fireflies? Yeah. No, I mean, those ideas, I think, come from... It's different than now. Like, with the Broken Age, we just watched many people play and just sat behind them and watched and um, kind of saw where people were getting stuck and put in in hints about it. And I think that, um, and some people miss that about the old games. They're like, because a lot of those uh, puzzles in the old game, there's no way out. Like, if you got stuck, there was nothing that kind of eased you out of that pit. You're right. right. You were just in that pit. You were just you there. Were up against a hard angle, and you're just like, I can't get out of here. And uh, you had to call the hint line, and you had to just, <laughs> you know, or, call yeah. your friend or do something like that. And, and I think in, um, in our game, we're like, you ensure that if you just keep playing at it, eventually you'll work your way up over that ledge. You yeah, know? yeah. Making some people super angry. <laughs> so, um, you know, Data Tentacle, uh, like you said, you 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 had a co-project lead on it, and that mm-hmm. was your 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 first title with your name on the box because they used to put uh, yeah. people's names on the box. That's what Ron and Ryan and, and those guys fought for, and yeah. we benefited from. And they tried to take our name off every single time. We had to fight <laughs> for it every single time, and uh, we didn't. I mean, part of it was like. Um, it wasn't just about ego. Part of it is sense, we sensed we were doing something smart for our own careers. We're like, yeah. okay, I think this is a good idea to have our name on the box. Yeah. And, but part of it was um, we liked the idea of people knowing that human beings made the game. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't just a company. Like the difference between the old Activision and Atari, you know, Atari never put the names on the boxes and Activision always did. Yeah. And it made you realize, like, some of the stuff you're saying about reading the adventure is like, oh, people made this. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Yeah, maybe I could do that. Right. I mean, that's like to jump ahead. There, there, there are two ways. I mean, there's probably more than that. Whatever. But uh, <laughs> you've like you've been an inspiration in me doing this uh, in multiple making ways. Podcasts. Uh, yeah, in, in making the double fine action podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, in, in in being a game maker, and one of them was when I was I was growing up, and I played uh, Full Throttle. And Full Throttle was the first game that you were, like, the mm-hmm. solo lead on. Um, and the way that that game used the format of games that I loved, uh, like Sam Max or Monkey Island or, or Data Tentacle, but was so much more grounded and talked about people that were so much more relatable and stripped out so much of the... You know, just car- cartoony stuff mm-hmm. while remaining... Funny and like compelling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that had a huge impact on me because it was like you can you can do that with a game. You know, it was like a thing. Uh, and like the ending of Full Throttle is whatever, like the best video game ending. Oh, awesome. you did it! Wow. You did it! Woo! Done. Um, 
and, and then after, you know, like, long after when I was in college or whatever and discovered that film noir existed, mm-hmm. you know, I, like, backwards superimpose it. I'm like, oh, this is, like, an interesting, you know, combination of... Mm. Anyway, um, so that, that... I think that that... that was like a creative inspiration. I come back to, to that. But then the other side of it is like you were saying, the whole like maybe I could do this thing mm-hmm. is when I was in college, I was finishing college, I got a, I got a sculpture degree. Uh, I, I liked your sculptures. Uh, Where are they? No, no, didn't no. bring any today. No? Yeah, okay. um, well, that was the thing. Like I, 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 had, I had done like illustration and 2D stuff for a long time and so I was like, well, I'm going to learn about working in 3D because I'm here at college, but it wasn't like what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I was sort of realizing, well, games are what I actually care about, and at that time, I read um, a sort of, like, profile uh, of you and of Peter Molyneux uh, on, like, GameSpot, mm-hmm. and it went all the way back to, like, you know, your application of LucasArts, mm-hmm. and, like, it basically just that, that thing of, like, oh, these guys that made stuff that has been like really important to me at some point they were just dudes that didn't know what the hell they were doing <laughs> they just started doing it and we still don't yeah. <laughs> indeed um, and so yeah I, I mean and as far as this podcast it is actually part of why I'm doing this podcast because I think having that perspective of like oh yeah everybody who started yeah. they started from somewhere they didn't know what they were doing at the beginning and they muddled through and uh, you could do it probably if yeah. you try and that's what our documentary is all about too I mean it's a lot of yeah. that that's where we show all the parts of it all the fights or whatever yeah because it's like you want people to see both how easy and how hard it is you know what I mean because yeah. there's a lot of hard choices you know making games and things you cut and stuff and then there's a lot of stuff that um, you know I didn't know when I was in high school you could do because I always thought of it you know that games were made by robots or, or huge corporations somehow. Yeah, well, I think when like when I was growing up, I didn't know how a game was made. I didn't realize you type stuff into a computer and then put it on a Nintendo. Like, I was like, I guess you make Nintendo games on a Nintendo. I don't know how you do that. Like, you know, it's just such a black box, and then you start to see, oh, there are people... Yeah. Doing it. Um, so, uh, but but that said, um, so Full Throttle, yeah, was was your first solo thing, and also it was a total new IP. It was it was not based on anything else yeah. that came before it. So like, you were, I mean, you were you're still pretty young, taking the reins on your first. As ninety five. It came out in 95. No, oh. I was in like, You are not 112 years old, Before sir. to 2000, the, the year started with 90s. Yeah, like 19s. Yeah, yeah. it was a weird, weird, weird time. time. Um, so, so, you know, like, that where, where, you know, this is whatever. This question sucks. Uh, where, where did the idea for the game, like, why, why was it a game about... I'm not going to answer that question. That's terrible. No, I think... Why, why is it I about mean, bikers and stuff? Because it's very, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not a cartoon. Well, it, that was like, another terrifying time, because, like, we finished the game, and just like when we started the game, we had no idea what to do next. David yeah. and I were like, okay, come on the game. Uh, should I go back to that butterfly idea? No, wait. Um, and Dave and I both tried to come up with separate ideas, and then we're like, maybe we should do one together again, because we we're just panicking, because, you know, we're getting paid, yeah. and then, like, management's... Um, and, you know, in the context of this is all the... The adventure games were never considered successes. Each one were huh. like, come on, this one can sell a little bit better. And, like, I just remember, like, uh, when Monkey 2 came out, and they were like, oh, it sold, like, 25,000 copies or something like that. And, um, and that was in the beginning. I think they went on to sell more than that. Or yeah. I think they're mostly pirated. I think most people who play those games have pirated them. I think still now most games that people play are pirated, unfortunately. Yeah, by the numbers. And... Um, it, it was a, so so we were and but but King's Quest was selling a lot like we knew that mm. the King's Quest but we like 
we didn't like that. At least I think a lot of us we didn't want to do just fantasy like yeah. straight up high fantasy or right. elves and tights fantasy as we so mockingly called it. But like we were, you know, I think pirates are like an alternative fantasy. Like yeah. this is an alternative, you know. Well, it's sort of the the idea in game development. I've heard in game development any of like the core fantasy, like being a pirate. That sounds attractive. Mm-hmm. Being a badass biker, mm-hmm. that's cool. I'd do. I'd be that mm-hmm. guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so different kind of like. Fantasy yeah. than just, just like stuff that hadn't been because there was a lot of that. There's a lot of elves. There's a lot of titles sure. in those days, and um, and it was actually in that era that I thought of the title Brutal Legend. Like huh. I was like, you know, these games that we're competing with, we're doing pirates and stuff, and they're all doing these fantasy stuff. And I was like, what if I was to make one of those, but just to go even farther, like just take it even farther than those guys are doing it, and just make it Brutal Legend. Anyway, I just tucked that in my back pocket. Yeah, but um, it's time would come. But management was like, okay, pitch us some games. Why don't you pitch us a whole bunch of options, and we'll pick. And I was mm. like, okay, that takes some of the pressure off. Uh, and they like had us write up, uh, why don't you both give us a pitch for a new monkey game, a new Dan Tentacle game, I mean, a mansion game, and a new, and, um, and then some new ideas. And so I remember writing up one for um, for monkey. Uh, this monkey. And it's weird. My uh, Monkey Island game, at some point, they went off into the sea, and they... They went down a big, huge whirlpool, which it was exactly like in Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> the, the world end. Yeah. One, which is obviously that was not stolen. There's all these things about how it was, you know um, all these similarities between the monkey games and that movie. Yeah. But um, that one was weird because I was in that document that no one saw. Right. No one ever saw that document. Yeah. I guess I didn't make it whirlpool, so I think I stole it from uh, Journey of the Sun of the Earth. <laughs> but um, I had three uh, original games, and there was a, a biker game. And a skeleton day to day game and a spy game. Those are three games I really wanted to make. And um, and I just remember Dave and I almost got fired because they, they brought us in here and they're like, "You guys are all over the map. <laughs> like, do you want to make any of these games? Like, we had pitched so many ideas that they were like, I don't even know what you guys want to make and yeah. stuff like that. And they, they, I remember they told us how much money we had been paid to make that document, like what a waste of money it was and stuff. And we were like, oh god. And uh, eventually, Dave went on to work on a version of the Dig. Oh, okay. Um, he was one of the five project leaders on the dig, and then um, I went back and I really did think. I went. I remember I had a heart to heart with Hal Barwood, who was really, he's kind of the old wise man of the games division. He made yeah. Corvette Summer, Dragon Slayer. You know? So he, um, I was like, they, I don't understand what they're saying. They want me to like because they wanted us to start thinking about um, sales, yeah. which we rarely did. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, what? They're basically asking us to say why we think this game would be a hit you know which is very common now but at the time I was like sure. it's like they want me to do this marketing justification for the game and Hal's like well then do it you know just do it and I was like oh yeah I, I'll stop being a baby and I'll just do that and I was like well this biker game my theory was that you know we love these kind of lovable losers who are the heroes of our games like like um, Guy Bersleepwood and, and Bernard Bernoulli are these kind of like you know chumps a lot yeah. of the time they get the butt of jokes yeah. in a game that and but maybe um, people who like to laugh at themselves can enjoy that. Kind of people who are secure can enjoy that. But maybe someone who's maybe some people would want to play a character who's cooler than them, tougher than them, and stronger than them. Maybe once in a while. And so I was like, I think I think um, Ben Throttle could be that. And it was and it was the best selling adventure game. I mean, it's, it, it it sold like a million, and that was a lot. We were always trying to break a hundred thousand because yeah. Quest was always like selling it a lot more than that. And, and a million is fucking. Good on PC for an adventure game. Yeah, ninety five. Like, yeah. I mean, that was by the time I left the company, it sold like about a million. Sure. 
and um, and I and we were we had a royalty program, and I made money on that that I would eventually use to found Double Fine. Right. But um, <laughs> but it was really just like someone was uh, a friend of mine was in the office, and his girlfriend was like telling us about her summer, and she was like, oh, I was hanging out in Alaska, and there are all these Sturgis bikers, and she was telling all these stories about bikers. And I was like, oh man, bikers are. <laughs> cool and they're like pirates kind of and they have no rules but they have their own rules and and all the stuff and so I just read Hunter's Thompson's book you know and the Hells Angels book yeah I watched the wild ones and mm-hmm. just um, stole much ideas from that and Yojimbo I think Yojimbo is like the real uh, inspiration for, for Ben just because I love to share Mifuni in that movie just how he's like I just love how it was like hand will come and scratch his neck <laughs> you know and just like you won't say anything it'll sit there and, and that stoic kind of uh, hero was him yeah, I, mean, I don't know that that the so the podcast is called Tone Control, and is I this think where you're about to control my tone. No, no, I'm going to ask you about controlling tone uh, <laughs> because the 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 tone in Full Throttle walked the line so yeah. interestingly for me. Right, like there's real darkness in that game that matters, like that's important. Uh, like I mean, specifically, I'm thinking of the scene where uh, Malcolm Corley dies mm-hmm. and Ben goes up to him and, you know, he, Malcolm's not going to make it. And Malcolm says, you got to hurt him for me, Ben. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hurt him bad. I'm like, that, wow, dying wish. Okay. And then, and, but then there's like levity and poignancy mm-hmm. and, and like, I, I don't know, like what, how did, how did you picture the way that you approached like creating who those characters were. Well, um, it, yeah, well, uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, you, I probably didn't think about it as deliberately. It's like now I want to make a game with this tone. Sure, but it was. Um, I mean, you never do, but well, it was more like um, what's right for. Because uh, you know, a lot. Of, I feel like anything can be done well, or anything can be done badly. Yeah. You know, there's no. I don't like. You know, I like all different kinds of music because they can all be done well. They can all be done bad. And so you just for this once it's given that you are making a biker game. You know, what's the right way to do that? You know, I thought a lot about puzzles. We just, you know, made it a tentacle where you would solve a puzzle a certain way. Bernard would solve a puzzle a certain way, and um, Ben would just kick down the door. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, that kind of led to certain type of puzzles. Yeah. And, and that seemed like a statement of intent in the opening scene in Full Throttle, where yeah, it's an adventure game, game adventure. and there's a locked door, and you just kick it open. It's like, oh, okay. That's yeah. what this game, that's what's different like, about this that game. That's how that, he, that guy would solve his problems. Yeah. And, um but I, I mean, I didn't really think about. I remember there was questions when I wrote up wrote up my um, my pitch for it. People were like, "Is this gonna be funny or not?" And I was kind of like, "Wait, I mean, yeah." Because I, mean, I always have this problem because the write-ups for the games always sound really serious, like like Grim sure. Fandango. They all sound pretty dark and broken age and all. They, uh, but like that's on on the high level. There's a serious quest and then a low level. When you actually go to write the dialogue adventure game, I don't know any other way to do it than. Yeah. Kinds of jokes because when someone takes a crochet hook and wants to shove it into the pig, you got to say something funny because yeah. that's a weird thing to do. Well, and there's, I mean, in in full throttle, there's there's that kind of humor, but there's also just sort of, I feel like, a more um, kind of uh, I don't know. There, there's just the turns of phrase, like it's 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 much lower key, you know, like mm-hmm. the like the the trucker guy, you know, is sort of like sort of menacing, but also. A weirdly clever, like you know, like how he handles the cops, or like how he kind of you know uh, uh, convinces Ben that he's on his side. But yeah, I don't know. There's, I, I feel like something that's so interesting about it to me is that 
it it is it is it uses what the what prior LucasArts games did well, but it applied it to so much different of, of this this context. You know, I feel like uh, I don't know, like um, like Mo is a fascinating character. You know, like because I don't know, that, I'm all I'm doing right now is saying you did a good job. Congratulations! Um, I would love but, to talk about the awesome job you know, uh, some more. So if you want to go into more detail on that, um, but it, it's I, I guess. Um, it seems like it must have been a really interesting place to be, to be taking tools that you had built familiarity with, like creatively, mm-hmm. over years of working on these games, and then say, well, it's going to be about this woman and her relationship with her estranged father. And that's like a real thing, you know, mm-hmm. like within an adventure game or within dialogue yeah. trees or, or whatever. I think it's just you spend a lot of time working on a pirate game or something, and you have this engine, and it dawns on you that this engine can draw any art that you want, you could take the player to any place in the world and do anything, and then you just start thinking about it in that kind of, you know, you know, anything would, um, there's an appeal to just things you haven't seen before. Like, someone was talking about a samurai game. I don't know why we never made a samurai game, but we're like, oh, it'd be so cool to do a samurai game that's in, like, super serious, like, samurai game. Yeah. It would be awesome. And, um, and that thought of just, like, um, it's, it's really easy in games, and still to this day, to come up with things that have never been done in games, because games are really imitative and they just they you know they cover I mean the indie games have changed a lot of that but for years it was just like science fiction and fantasy and then like GTA brought in like Sopranos like so right. like, yeah. like very they're, they're a very small number of like acceptable outlets yeah I mean, World War 2 for a while like, and then um, and so it was really easy to, to come up with stuff that like oh, I've never seen that treated in a game before yeah you know yeah, yeah. and um, and I it also probably more reflection of what what the person who made the game was into at the time. Right. Because I was just, you know, really into Toshiro Mifuni, you know, and, and I loved Road Warrior, like, my, still one of my favorite movies, and, um... Yeah. And that stuff just naturally became... Like, and then also, when I start to learn that, to take in everything that I can find that's been done in that realm, you know, yeah. and that's just in your head, and so it just comes out, like, how would bikers talk? They would, you know, how, how this world... And, you know... And with Mo, I just remember um, trying to think of all the characters, what they're doing when they're not on screen. Yeah. And I had a big chart for Maureen for like what she, where she is at all times, and like what she thinks is going on. Because hmm. she is, you know, meets Ben, and she she knows that her dad is this guy, but Ben, you know. And yeah. so, what does she care about then? And then when she finds out her dad is dead, and then she would probably think Ben had done it, but she'd be conflicted because she liked Ben. And so she's here. She's like hunting him down so she can kill him. You know, so yeah. so that next time you see her, she's got something to say because she's had her own path. Like just because she was off screen, doesn't mean she wasn't up to something interesting. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, I could I could geek on this for a trillion years, but uh, <laughs> I won't. I'll restrain myself. Uh, so 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 it sounds like it was you know for the company it was like a huge success. Yeah, you know, I mean it was a critical success, it was exciting, obviously, yeah. but it was like, like it's finally, sold. Oh, right? man. Yeah, and that was a good, like, that year for us was, like, that came out, the dig came out, and um, TIE Fighter, I think. Oh, yeah. Or X-Men, TIE Fighter, I think it was TIE Fighter. And it was probably probably the peak, because as soon as we started making, we got the rights to make Star Wars games, that started, and it was still, we had all these creative people making all the original titles, and then we started making money, because we started making Star Wars titles, and there are people like Peter Chan, who are amazing artists who, they love Star Wars, and you can draw amazing you know, Ralph McQuarrie-type, Sid Mead, crazy Star Wars stuff. Yeah. And then also Macau and, and Grim Fandango-type stuff. Yeah. And 
Um, and when it was balanced like that, the company was really at its best, I feel like, because there were people, we had stability and we had exposure and people knew about us and people would come to work on Star Wars or to work on original stuff. And it was a balance. Yeah. But of course, like if you were, you know, if you're investing your own money and you could be like, I'm going to, I have millions of dollars. I'm going to put it either. I'm going to bet. I only say you only had a million dollars and you're going to bet it on either Star Wars or just something that some guy made up. Yep. <laughs> It'd be really hard to bet on the, the you know, yeah. well, here's this kid at a college and they want to do this thing. Should I give him my million dollars? <laughs> or should I give this, to, give it to Luke Skywalker? And so yeah. just everything just shifted into that direction and sure. eventually the company was making all, all Star Wars stuff. Wait, but that, which, that year was a great crossover where like Star Wars was on the rise and the original projects were kind of on their way down and they were still like, it was a perfect comedy. Yeah. And Grand Fandango was the last of the the, totally the last original. Game. Well, but the, you were talking about There was another there, Monkey right? Island game afterwards. I mean, you 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 shipped Grand Fandango and you left. That was the last. No, no, I stayed. Well, so yeah. So after Throttle, they did ask like, "Why you Throttle 2? And I was like, "Ah, yeah, I really want to do this. Um, I still have this Day of the Dead game. I want to make this Day of the Dead game." Right. And um, and uh, I I didn't. You know, there's a lot of pressure to use 3D. We're starting Grim. I mean, Throttle actually had 3D. We painted over 3D for a lot of the vehicles. Yeah. Right. And um, so 3D was on the rise. I just always thought it looked ugly. I just hated the way the early 3D looked. Um, it looked good for like a car, which <laughs> is what you use it for. <laughs> yeah, but we had 2D artists paint over all the right. frames, every frame, frame over. So, but then I saw BioForge. Was yeah. BioForge the game? And I was Forge like, game, yeah. They um, pre-rendered the background, so they looked really nice. And the characters were simpler. And I was like, and I just love the um, atmospheric way, like you would move through a hallway and the camera angle changed to low angle and high angle and the side view and I was yeah. like that's so cool and that's why Grimm is in 3D and also why it has tank controls because <laughs> it's 3D with pre-render backgrounds just like that game but also uh, you know being able to push forward and have them move through a lot of different camera angles was like that was really important so that's why it has the much hated tank controls <laughs> it has also what we call Mario style controls because Mario um, came out before we finished that game so we had Mario 64 Tomb Raider controls it's probably still in the code somewhere it's like switch between Tomb Raider and Mario style and then Mario 64 where you just push in a direction you go that direction right so if you play with the gamepad you can still play that way oh really no one ever talks about that <laughs> well it's because it was going to be like on whatever PlayStation or something right but then it ended up being PC only no no it was, it was all like PC yeah when we started it was still the world was all PC I mean, there was a PlayStation 1 was out, but we were not seriously attacking that. Because uh, um, it, like it, it felt like it was designed for controllers, so I assume that well, was because it was going to be on I was the, No, I was just mentally leaving the world of PC games because I played Mario 64, and huh. I was like, oh my god. I love... I'm in a world... I still feel like I'm immersed in a world and going deeper into this castle, and I, I think the moment where I found the basement of the castle, and where I was like, oh, I don't really want to make one of these games. Yeah. And just... Or Final Fantasy VII... I just remember pushing through a door. That whole question of like, do you open a closed door or close an open door? And right. Maybe it's just simple. You just use the use verb, and then the Final Fantasy VII, you just push against it. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second. That's <laughs> that's probably the maximum amount a player ever wants to think about a door. Yeah. Just push against it, and it opens. Like, yeah. It just why can't they all be this easy? And so I started thinking about things and console centric things, and I think that is what led to the kind of Mario style controls that are in Grim. Nice. The gamepad, but 
no one plugged in a gamepad back then. Yeah. Everybody's got a gamepad on their uh, computer. I'd rather now, use so. a keyboard and complain about it. Yeah. And then eventually hack in point click controls later. <laughs> but th that just happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. still need to play that version. That's one of the things that happened while I've been too busy to play video yeah. games. But I want to. Uh, because, no offense, yeah, the controls and grammar are kind of fucked up. But we were really used to having Resident Evil had them, Tomb Raider had them. This, as my mom would say about her uh, polyester striped pants, they were very popular back then. <laughs> So, um, I mean, Grimm was an enormous production, right? Like, that was a long Yeah, thing, right? and it was three years, I want to say three years, three million dollars, I forget. It was and, three something. Well, and also the game took place over, yeah, like, years. many years, fictionally. Four, right? yeah. Um, so that was, that was, like, the furthest along the, it was an epic production mm -hmm. in every mm -hmm. sense. Um, was that a similar kind of thing where it was, like, you know... These games that normally essentially take place in real time, give or take, you know, takes place over however long it took you to play it, maybe mm -hmm. with some time compression, and it's like, well, I'm, well, could you make one of these games that takes place over the span of a decade, or, like, where did... Well, where did that idea come from? I mean, it was... It was like a big like... structural surprising <clears throat> thing to me as a player, it was like, whoa, five years, or whatever it was, you know, a year later... Um, um, well, a lot of it came from the reference. Here's a book right here. Yeah, yeah it works. both ways. Um, let it be known. Produces exhibit A. <laughs> this is so, a classic looking... It looks like I stole it from the library, but I think <laughs> I might have. It's uh, Mexican folk ways. It's like, yeah, so the folklore... It doesn't have a library about, card inside of it, so... Okay, good, I'm in the clear. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I just started doing research on Mexican folklore. And well, because uh, Dia de los Muertos is, is a, a thing here in San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, they, and in Mexico. Well, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, you're, you, you've been in the Bay Area for... Were, are it you from here originally? It's Sonoma. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but, like, you know, they, they have the Day of the Dead celebration here every year. Well, I... So in, uh, yeah, I studied... I, one of the greatest classes I took in college was this uh, Forms of Folklore class at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, Alan Dundee's Anthro 160. And we just study all kinds of like uh, everything from like nursery rope rhymes to recipes to folk tales and huh. all these just classic just um, anything from the oral tradition and just how they're he could like um, he'd have class and he'd ask someone to tell uh, do you know this ghost story and how does it end and someone would tell it and be like are you from you're from Southern Michigan and he would know that because <laughs> of the way the story ended this, he knows all the varieties of this ghost story you can just pinpoint where you are in the country by how you end the story That's anyway and we had one uh, had a day lecture on um, uh, the day of the dead and, and I just loved that um, the lore behind it because it was it was kind of compromised like it was, it was there was a very serious religious you know Toto Santos and, and um, uh, aspect to there are definitely is to the day of the dead but then at a certain point, the um, I think it was the Mexican government and Mexican Board of Tourism was like, we should kind of amp this up because the tourists love it. Yeah. And it's like it was, it's not completely natural folklore. It's like a little bit like encouraged to be around. Yeah. And um, and uh, and also there are these kind of corrupted things about death in these stories where when people died, they would put a bag of gold on their chest take to spend in the, in the next world yeah. but they'd also hide a bag of gold in the lining of the coffin <laughs> so it wouldn't get stolen right. and it's like after you're dead you have to worry about thieves like it's crazy <laughs> this is, and um, there's that and then I just was really getting into film noir and Raymond Chandler reading a lot of Raymond Chandler at the time and then yeah. there was a film noir series at the Lark Theater in Marin and I was just I went to every single one of them and just 
uh, you know, about Casablanca and all that. And there seemed to be this, like, overlap. But it may have been just that it was just random that I happened to be in these two things at the same time. So, wait, we were talking about why I got to that book. And I was reading stories about how there are always cool things like, well, um, when someone dies, they have to make a four-year journey of the soul right. to Midland, which is the ninth, the ninth only world, the land of eternal rest. And that's, so basically, that's where the four-year thing came from. I, I was see. like, oh, a four-year journey of the soul? That sounds like a quest. <laughs> that sounds like an adventure game right there. But if we made it actually take four years to play, that might become boring, so let's cut. <laughs> and let's have, use this filmic language. Let's jump ahead one year. You know, let's just do that. Yeah. And then I also liked um, Rat Fink Hot Rods. And, right. And so it wasn't like, I don't know if it really felt like, well, it needs some Rat Fink. I think that's what this idea needs to, to meld the film noir and the Mexican football together. We need some Big Daddy Rock. It was more just like, obviously. these are all the things I liked. In yeah. 1995, these are the things that I cared most about, and so they just kind of came together. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and on some level, it's going to be that, right? You know, it's like you, you have your, your base. And, and then, it should be that. I mean, I feel like yeah. it should be like the stuff you're into because you're just put yourself in. I mean, that's you know, it it's, should be a game that only you would have made because of what you yeah. and only you would have made at that age and that year and that place. Yeah, you know? and people are going to be excited about it because you can put it on screen in a way that shows them why you're excited about it. Right? Like you can't yeah. fake that. You can't be like, oh, this is about something that I don't actually care about. Yeah, like oh. Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. Don't tell George. I like a couple of those movies. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, like, um, was it, I mean, how much time was there between when you left LucasArts and when you started Double Fine? Well, there was a whole year where I was still at Lucas, because remember that document, I had a, I had a biker game, uh, day-to-day game, and I was working on the spy game. Oh, you actually so started back, working on that Yeah, after yeah, Grand. I had this whole okay. spy in space game, it was a little bit like 2001 in Shaft, it was gonna be awesome. It was like Shadow Five, man. Like Barbarella, the little Barbarella, two thousand and one, um, and uh, I had a story. It had like a million ideas in it, yeah. it also, and it was like kind of also because the thing after the whole film noir Mexican folklore thing, I was really into Hong Kong wire food movies. I think back ninety eight, yeah. I was like going. The UC Theater had like Hong Kong Thursdays, and I went every single Hong Kong movie. And uh, the, the um, God, what was that one about cults? about crazy Hong Kong cults. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, I had a whole bunch of these kind of cults in the game. And Anyway, and I remember um, somebody, I was pitching it to somebody, and I wanted to have this thing uh, where you, there was an object, it was your only clue to a crime that the spy had to figure out, and he would meditate on it. And he would meditate on it, and he had this vision quest in his head, and it was interactive, and you solved puzzles in this vision quest to get more information, like, ah, oh, now you knew who created that object or something like that. Huh. You'd meditate on this object to find clues about it. And I was pitching this around, this spy game, the space, and the shaft. And, um, and then someone or Lucas Zimmer came off. I was like, tell me, tell me, can you tell me about this game where you go into other people's heads? And I was like, no, 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 you go into your own head. And then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> that's so much better. So that's where ideas come from. You, people misunderstand you. And that's where Psychonauts came from. It's like... Yeah, you go into other people's heads. That's oh, better. Oh, I realized yeah. my idea would be better if it was the opposite. Yeah. So I, I was there, I was working on that game, but just Lucas was, like I was saying, it was becoming more something else. Yeah. And a lot of the people who were there for the um, the kind of golden days of the, attracted by the, you know, making up worlds and doing creative work were leaving. I mean, Ron had left, you know, Peter Chan had left, uh, mm-hmm. Supercell had left, and... 
Um, Chris Brown had left. So a lot of people were just kind of, Dave Grossman had left, flooding out of there. And I was felt like I was just, I'd stay there too long because I wanted to finish this game. Yeah. And there's still a lot of good people there, but I just felt like um, a lot of stuff had happened. Also, I, I found out that they were working on a sequel to Full Throttle that they don't even told me that it was going on. I was like, oh, no, that's true. I guess I don't own that. Yeah. Control that. I think I want to control and own all the things I make up from now on. So it's yeah. double fine. Yeah. So you started it in like... 2000. 2000. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean... Tell me about starting Double Fine. That was, that's another one of those like leaps where, if I knew how scary it was, you know, in retrospect, I might not have taken that leap. But it was like, did uh, well, it seemed like a pretty crazy time to do. It. I mean, two thousand. Yeah, that was well, like before. Was, like there were very super, many small studios like this one. I mean, not before, but it was like. But it was the um, beginning of the internet, and yeah. there was an incredible amount of optimism about starting your own thing. People we had known had had, had started, you know. We're selling domain names for ten thousand dollars. They're just like people starting their own companies and getting rich all the time. It seemed like, um, and I was like, "Yeah, let's start a company." Okay, and like, uh, and you know, we quit, and it was just like me in my apartment in the bathroom, calling up people I knew and saying, "Hey, I want to make this game by going into people's minds." And um, was it a thing where where you had a crew of LucasArts people that like you brought with you, or not a whole crew? Eventually, we you know would hire a lot of the Grim team, yeah. Mark Hamer and Chris Schultz, who were still here, and um, Peter Chan, we still work with. Um, yeah. But um, at the time, a couple of friends of mine had quit their jobs too, and they were going to start the company. And by the time it actually came time to incorporate it, uh, they were off doing something else. Uh-huh. So um, I was alone, but then had some. Contacts like Dave Dixon and guys who are so Lucas who I call up and start the company with, but um, I think the thing that happened that really, um, I mean, I was I went and pitched the game uh, to Sony, and I remember um, pitching the game to Microsoft, but uh, and I also I was at GDC in two thousand. I gave a talk about characters and mm-hmm. game development. And um, Ed Freeze was in the audience, and he came up afterwards like, I really liked your talk. I want to talk to you about games as art, you know, because that was a big push in the beginning of the Xbox. It was like, yeah. games can be art. And um, and I was just so, it was such a great timing thing that they launched this platform, and they were looking to sign a whole bunch of people, and here I am in my bathroom. Well, I wasn't where I was wearing the bathroom, but, and I just really like, oh, wow, they're really excited to go. And I remember um, pitching to um, to Sony, and they, the guy I was pitching to, went up to at E3, and um, he was kind of skeptical. He's like, "Have you ever done a game like this, like a console game with platforms and stuff? Have you ever done a level?" And I was like, "No, never <laughs> you done ever a level." level. <laughs> no, okay. no, I make these adventure games, but I played a lot of Zelda and I played a lot of Mario, and I, I, I figured out it's fine. And um, it's, it's just like never occurred to me that I didn't have competency in that. I was just like, "Yeah, I want to do it." And um, I, I love these kind of games, so obviously, just by loving it, I'll be able to do it. And he was like, well, why don't you um, do a, like a mock-up of design of a level and show it, like, you know, he basically wanted to see if I had any level design skills, which I still don't. And um, he, he uh, well, I mean, like, the way that a really professional level designer, you know, would lay out a, a, a level and all the things they think about. And he wanted to see that document. And, but Microsoft wanted to sign right away. So I was yeah. like, well, I'm going to sign with Microsoft because they're not <laughs> asking for all these things. Which was, and the guy I was pitching to was Dave Jaffe. <laughs> it was like young Dave Jaffe who had not made God of War yet and I was like he doesn't think I can do it and he's probably right you know because we went through a lot of you know four year learning process to make Psychonauts we were a bunch of um, 
PC guys. And, and also, we didn't know what we were doing, and Microsoft didn't know what they were doing, because yeah. they were like, oh, we don't know how to, you know. So they were very hands-on, and I didn't know how to work with publishers. Like, yeah. I would, I had, you know, I got, I was at a company where I got to make my own skeleton game just because I wanted to. <laughs> kind of, you know, learning from Ron. Like, Ron just wanted to make one of too, so I just started making it, and, and you know, kind of felt like we, we should be able to make these games, that we have these passionate ideas about making. And all of a sudden, there's somebody saying, like, yeah, well, why don't you do a, turn in a, like, a 20-page document talking about the design and also this milestone to get these things done that we think you should get. And I said, what? Who? What? You know, just that <laughs> idea of, like, having to navigate that relationship yeah. with someone who's giving you a bunch of money was new to me, and I did yeah. That was much more... It's a different say. kind of accountability, I, I assume, in yeah. that situation. And it, there was a lot of stuff I had to learn, but that system did not help me learn it. It was just really just going through it. And, and Psychonauts was like a disastrous thing in the beginning. Like, it was really hard to get started. We um, you know, didn't have any engine, and we were starting from scratch. And, um, Did you bring on like hardcore programmers? Just, like, made, you guys made your own engine for that thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only and then we threw it out and made our own from scratch again for Brutal Legend. So but now was, you're keeping that one. Yeah, we, we have all that one, and now we have a core tech tree that we use for Yeah, because the crazy thing, I, I only know this because I know people who have worked here, uh, mm-hmm. is that, yeah, all of the games, past Brutal Legend, all the Amnesia Fortnite games, everything, mm-hmm. are made in the Brutal Legend engine. In the engine, in the 3D games. The 2D games are made in the... Uh, God, what do we call that thing? The one we built on top of Moai for Broken Age. Oh, okay. And uh, 2D games are um, use uh, Moai. Okay. And our version of that. Yeah. Um, 2HB, I think is what we call it. 2-Headed Baby. So, um... Good name for an That's engine. the tool. That's the, that's the, uh, one of the editing tools. So, we, um... What were we talking about? We're oh, yeah. Psychonauts. I didn't you know you had to so I, uh, do that shit, too. Eventually, by hiring designers and working with different people, we started, you know, um, trial and error, gradually putting this game. It took a long time to get it fun. Yeah. Which is something, you know, now we, I think, the whole industry knows a lot more about white boxing, gray boxing. Is yeah. there a difference between white boxing and gray boxing? Anyway. I don't know. I, um, I, I've only ever gray boxed anything. I think it might mean the same thing. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you would put a character in a simple, ugly room and figure out the mechanics before you start building, because the scum game, you start building the environments. You're like, you got a hundred rooms to get done. Let's start. I mean, <laughs> there is no, like, you know, the, and then you work on the character and any changes you made to the mechanics of the character wouldn't be very dramatic and they would never affect the background art, right? right. Whereas, like, you make a character who's, like, you gotta jump a certain distance and all the ledges, you know, they have yep. to, you have to have this, like, you know... Learning all that stuff took a long time. It was very painful, and it obviously made Microsoft very nervous to watch us go through that, but it's still... Um, we still have this, I think, the idea... I mean, if you look at the original... You know, the, stu- the first stuff we turned into them was eventually, like, glorious theater in Psychonauts, you know, so it's yeah. very, still true to the idea of what it was, and the original game design document looks a lot like the final game, which is really kind of, but we went through this whole process of, like, reinventing ourselves and, and learning all this stuff. So yeah. Like, that was what it took four years to make think five years. But then it ended up fairly similar to where you had wanted it to be in the early days, and it was just this process of, like, finding your way back there, essentially, through well, this like, whole process. I mean, a lot of it was, like, I had... A, kind of high level high concept about about everything and um, kind of uh, didn't really know how many details and mechanics we'd have to figure out yeah. you know and because uh, in my mind I was taking the things I like from Zelda and the things I like from Mario without realizing that you you know you can't just combine those things 
and expect all the everything to just work. Yeah. And um, I was like, yeah, yeah, Raz will have a rank from when I next. I like ranking up. Like, <laughs> like, like, leveling up is cool. What? Yeah, leveling up is cool. I like it when I go up. And um, and I remember it's still Eric Robson who was the lead designer on that. And eventually. I'd be like, you know, this this long branch goes, and there's nothing at the end of it. We should put like one of those side challenge markers there, and he'd be like, okay, I can, I guess I can find one to put there. And I was like, just put one there. Like, he had to like, like I was, he point out to me like, yeah, that's a finite, that's your rank, so you can't just have an infinite number of them. Yeah. You gotta only have 99 in the whole game or 100. We still managed to overlook one. There's like, there's like actually 101 that you can get, but um, uh, just all that stuff, all the stuff that your job was all about, like those kind of things that we know about games now. We were just yeah. like trying to teach ourselves. Um, yeah, and it was—I mean, it was a huge leap. It was more new territory, mm-hmm. you know, mechanically, experientially, as far as what you were building mm-hmm. than anything that you had you had done before. I mean, that seems like a crazy thing. Uh, that because you know when when we were starting Fulbright Company, we were like, okay, we've been working on these kinds of games for years. We should just make one of those. Mm-hmm. But with less stuff in it, mm-hmm. and it worked out. Uh, it seemed like a crazy thing to be like, "Oh, we're working on these kinds of games. Ah, let's start a new company and just make something totally <laughs> different." And eh, we'll, well, we'll because you're we'll chasing it. inspiration. I yeah. think that's always what we've always like been an inspiration-driven company, which leads yeah. to all the good and the bad things that we have. Because like, you have an idea for like, oh my god, I love this game and I want to make a game like it, but it's in this other world and this is what's going to be like. So the high-level thing. And now you're shooting for this high-level thing, regardless of what your team is, what your competency is, what yeah. your money is. You've got to <laughs> scramble all those things together to get to that thing, and it pushes you to do something better than you maybe would have done. But you, um, and you, as long as you survive it, you're, right. you know, you're a little better off. But we almost didn't several times. So yeah. Um, well, because yeah, you you were with Microsoft, but then that ended up not. Freeze left the company yeah and his soon after his, his successors were like oh, what's this <laughs> what's this game that's super late and and it's coming out on Xbox One wait you can't call it that anymore it's Xbox. coming out on the original Xbox the original, they said the original in Xbox. <laughs> and it's coming it was supposed to come out in February 2005 and they were like we're not doing any more original Xbox games in 2005 I was like but it's February like um, guys no so we were got canceled but then you ended up with Majesco whose Nasdaq symbol is Cool. <laughs> is that why you think we picked him? We're like, let's go down the NASDAQ. Let's see. Mm, Acme, Ford, no. Cool. Cool. Do they make uh, cigarettes? Well, I, I... It was... So, um, lots of convoluted stuff. The reason I know the Idle Thumbs guys is because I was checking the Double Fine Action News homepage hmm. all the time in like 2004 hmm. and uh, you had a link to Idle Thumbs in the sidebar and I was like what's this and I clicked on it and I started reading their stuff they were a text site and I was writing my own stupid garbage about games hmm. at the time and I was like hey could I write for you guys and I sent them my I write stupid garbage yeah you guys make stupid, stupid garbage, garbage. Uh, and, and so I sent them my Doom 3 review uh, and <laughs> however many years later so you're still friends th- thank you for putting out oh, the I thumbs no link on the I, double, I, the I double think that means page. that I own Fulbright and Idle Thumbs now yeah hey man probably Campo Santo I probably own all those things you're going to <laughs> no, I, um, <laughs> um, but, thanks for reading the old website that yeah. website was fun um, and so at the time because I was you know like hanging out with those dorks on the internet and all of us were obsessed with Stupid you know, garbage. psychonauts and, and stuff. Well, <laughs> your word's not mine. No, you said stupid garbage. <laughs> well, but then I said psychonauts <laughs> and it overlapped. Um, 
And and so at that point, because those guys are who they are, they discovered that Nasdaq's symbol mm-hmm. for Majesco was cool. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward however many years, and now uh, Midnight City, an imprint of Majesco, is publishing Gone Home on consoles. Mm-hmm. And in their press release announcing that that they sent me to vet. Mm-hmm. I was rem- it's Nasdaq symbol cool. I was like, oh, I forgot. It come full circle. <laughs> but we made the best decision possible. I don't just write about stupid garbage anymore. I make it. <laughs> it was the dream all along. Yeah. Um, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. So so um, God, I'm I'm keeping you for a trillion years. Uh, I, I. Oh my God! It's already eight o'clock. We've been here for nine hours. It's amazing, it's crazy. right? Um, but I but I, if you don't mind, I do want to just uh, talk about. Brutal Legend, and then how that got you into what you're doing now, which was yeah. essentially like diversifying and, like you were saying, making this this creative campus of like many yeah. different. Because you you started out the, the the studio as like a one project studio essentially, right? Like Psychonauts, big long epic yeah, production yeah. happened. Mm-hmm. Brutal Legend, again. I mean, something I haven't even covered. You've worked with such incredibly talented like non games people, like performers. You know, Jack Black and all the metal artists mm-hmm. in Brutal Legend. Mm-hmm. That's like a whole other crazy thing um, but it seems like it feels to me like it was a product of the industry changing as well as probably you and the people at the studio having gone through this this cycle of like multi-year single game development for a long time where it's sort of like okay we've done that a couple of times it was really hard we made big cool things that were rad but also almost killed us Almost kill this and getting the money back on that is not like the easiest. And thing I don't know if we'll be able to keep doing it. And that was the thing. Like brutal legend, like you take, you know, you take fifteen, twenty million dollars from someone, and you get to keep the IP. Yeah, that's amazing. And I don't know. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. Like yeah. I, I was like, I, I could, you know, we had a lot of help with um, Seamus, our agent, somehow yeah. managed to help us get that. It was crazy, and um, and that was really important to me. Like I was saying, finding the company and, and keeping our IP was. It's critical to us. Yeah. And um, I just, I could sense games are getting more and more expensive, and the more money you take from somebody, the more strings attached, and the worse deal you're going to get. Yeah. Because they're giving you, I mean, it's pretty generous to give someone $30 million or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get to have your IP, obviously, and, um, but I didn't want to do that. And also, I didn't want to, like, stop taking risks, because it seems like the more, you know, when I was uh, pitching Brutal Legend, and I'd have them say, that's cool, but, you know... It was hip hop and country are more popular than metal. Why don't you make it about hip hop and country? And I was like, that's the craziest thing anyone's ever said to me. That's insane. I mean, I bet it totally makes sense. I see what you're saying, but I'm coming from this position of like, you get inspired by an idea and you chase that thing down. You right. know, try and figure out what is more popular, and that's probably why um, I'm not super rich. <laughs> but, um, but what are we talking about? How long have we been in this office? Well, no, I, yes. Yeah, the problem with uh, talking to someone who has such a long dance Old career, person, talking to a senior citizen is that yeah they need yeah. a lot of bathroom breaks. They oh, forget right. what they're talking about. Yeah, so. yeah, that happens. Uh, no, but that this should be the longest interview in history because I want to talk about everything forever. Uh, but instead, I'm going to sadly under. I, I'm, I'm going to apologize for not talking about. Taking a long time. To I know. Well, it here's the thing. I like need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> we can keep talking. No. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glossing over you know uh, the intricacies of Psychonauts and, and Brutal Legend a little bit because um, 
Because, yeah, I, I part of what I think is so interesting about um, what you've done is, is, you know, you went from LucasArts to start your own studio, and then that studio changed shape in, like, a really... Dramatic. Dramatic way, right. Yeah. Um, what, in sort of, like, 2008, 9? 2009. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I, I know, the, I know the, the folklore, the, the, the legend, the brutal legend, of, of how this came to be, which was, while you were working on Brutal Legend, it was sort of like, okay, we're going to do this event... Amnesia Fortnite of just like mm-hmm. forget about the big project everybody just makes small projects mm-hmm. and like to kind of avoid just being massively burned out on this giant thing that, was, that mm-hmm. everybody was trying to, to get through and so that led to what you did after Brutal Legend came out but I mean like it it, it seems like it seems like that was another big big crazy risk you know because it feels like it's a thing that a studio like Double Fine had really not done before you know, to say we're going to focus, we're going to say, you know what, we've been, we've been making big retail titles. We're yeah. going to focus on a bunch of small. I mean, a lot of couples, titles. a lot of companies still haven't changed scope. Yeah, like that. Yeah, um, and some of them went out of business. And some business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is something you kind of see. I mean, there's a pressure you feel for for years, which is like how to convince somebody to give you twenty million dollars. You know, yeah. this, this problem. Well, just make the game sound like it's going to be a huge hit. And that gets kind of tiring after a while because you're like, I just want to pursue this idea that I'm, I like. I have this fun idea. And I don't know if it was like, um, maybe Geometry Wars came out. Was yeah. it XPLA? Was that the right time? That was a really but early like, XPLA, like 360 XPLA. <laughs> the first one that most people have played, yeah. right? And so um, I just remember thinking, like, this is such a simple idea. I bet this didn't take five years to make. And I bet this was easier to talk about, or just it was probably done before they ever pitched it. And you know what I mean? It was yeah. just part of a, it was like part of one of the racing games. Right. It was like a mini game in what Project Gotham Racing or something. Like that. And I was like, I want to do a small game that's just like a light idea, and like not just like uh, this has got to sum up everything I feel about RTS games and heavy metal or something like that. This is gonna be <laughs> right. everything in two, my brain right now. It's two great tastes that taste great together, <clears throat> by the way. And that's a whole. Oh wait, one funny story about that. I pitched that again to Sony. And the person I was pitching to was like, because it started as like, I love Warcraft and I like Big Daddy Rat Thing, so I'm gonna make this demon version of, of um, of RTS game. And uh, and then I also have the story about a roadie for having a band who goes back in time. I was like, this I can put these together. And um, I was pitching it and I was like, I'm gonna make this RTS game about a roadie who goes back in time. And the guy was like, mm, I really like this action adventure part of it, but I don't know about the RTS stuff. And this is like, well, I'm not going to go with you then. And guess who that guy was? Again, Dave, Dave, Dave Jaffe. Jaffe. <laughs> <laughs> it's what so I was like, going to say. At every point where I make a critical decision, there's always this warning, like, don't go this way, it's Dave Jaffe. <laughs> and I was like, yes, there was, there was, I did have a hard road in for me, Dave Jaffe. What shouldn't I do now? <laughs> I've told him that story, too. I was like, what advice do you have for me now? Like, um, but... Um, yeah, this, these big huge games, and then uh, I hope he just told. I, I hope he was just like, you know, Halloween's big, <laughs> and you're like, this time I'm listening, David. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you should do a podcast with Steve Gaynor. Oh, that's and gonna go on that. huge. Yeah, yeah. You just um, <laughs> but well, I mean, just, we've established you own it, so you're gonna get all the royalties. Uh, oh, all the royalties from this podcast? Yeah, right. Because oh, of the whole like double fine homepage thing, so you're good. Oh, that's right. And yeah. I'm like, okay. okay. Um, someone through that story I think I own Dave Jaffe's game I don't know how that works but that's the magic of IP so um, just the, the pressure of like you've got to have an idea that is going to like um, 
float a sixty-person studio and and then and be and mitigate risk and be a huge hit, and you got to go up against um, you know you're going to compete with Halo. Like that's just no, I don't want to. I mean, like you know, and um, I felt that way with Brutal. Like it felt like oh, we're going to have one of these big games now. I'm on stage with EA and I'm talking, you know, right next to the guys pitching like. Um, Dante's Inferno or something it just feels like the big time yeah like those kind of ideas and those deals are just so draining and um, I just want to do small ideas but also I wanted other people in the company I could tell people are getting kind of restless like you know when you have one project at one company as you'll find out everybody wants you to die because they all want to move up one right everyone <laughs> wants to get promoted and they can't get promoted if like there's one project leader maybe yeah. one lead programmer one lead artist no one can move at all. Yeah. It's like, what if we had multiple teams and at least we have like four project leaders and four art yeah. directors and four leaders? Well, that, and that seems like, like aside from just the structural thing, just like, okay, from one big project, many small projects, that seems like the other thing, like mentally from your point of view, uh, as an individual, that, that must have been a huge shift and that also I think is really smart, is really valuable, is something that, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to... to to step back from your ego a little bit and be like, okay, well, every game we make is not going to be my idea. Let's make my idea and I'm in charge of it. It's like I'm going to give these other talented people that I've drawn into this building the chance to say, we're going to do your idea and your idea and your idea. And you're, you know, you individually are, are overseeing that stuff. Like on some level, you're still kind of um, the... Probably the, stopping really bad ones from getting here. Yeah, <laughs> right. The, the the gatekeeper, the filter. Yeah. No, but I mean, you're 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 there, like giving input, making stuff better. But also, it seems like a huge change to to go from we make Tim Schafer games to we make games by a bunch of people that have have come here to, to do cool stuff. I mean, see how you say it, like it's a huge sacrifice for me. And the other way to look at it is like Tom Sawyer painting a fence. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he gets all these people. Feel like they should pay him for the right to paint his fence, get his work done, <laughs> and that's what it all is. It's a big scam to get Lee Petty and all these people just do my work for me. Well, they're all gonna know now that I'm putting this podcast out. Oh, no, Cats out of the bag. They don't listen to this. No, okay, I'm <laughs> good. I believe that that is true. Um, no, I mean it's because I, I don't. I don't think of it necessarily as a like sacrifice, but it's a, it's a shift, right? Like it's a it's a big difference. I mean, I, it's I all like, those pressures like I was talking about really led to it like the desire to be not dependent on one revenue stream all the time yeah. like oh my project both the first two projects got cancelled and we almost went under both times you know trying to get them resigned. Yeah. and we had you know been brutal we had 60 people on the payroll and that's a lot of money every two weeks to pay oh yeah and um and so it, it, you know just going through that I was like I can't can't take these like one hanging from one line you know all the time and uh, just wanted to have multiple time, multiple games because we have more ideas than one every five years, and we have multiple people who have ideas. So now we're like making four games a year or so, and it's it's much more exciting because yeah. um, they don't all have to sell five million copies. You know, they can, and um, and most recently, thanks to like starting to get, it started when we got angel investors like with uh, Steve Engler and like um, the Kickstarter. Obviously, allows us to do self publishing. Yeah. And the combination of multiple projects with still publishing, it's like, wow, we can actually make money at this. And you don't have to beat Halo to make money in the right. games industry. You can actually just put out your own thing and you're gonna keep the money. If yeah. you actually you know, if you don't actually use someone else's money, you can keep what yeah. back. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, and I I mean I've even my understanding is that since you got to keep the IP and mm -hmm. for like Psychonauts, 
uh, or is that what I'm thinking? Maybe it's brutal. I don't know. But your past games, like since the rise of Steam and like PC downloadable being a thing, like that's been good for you guys too, right? Because it's like, Maybe. oh, we'll take our old games and put them on this new platform, and then you get to again keep the money <laughs> for yeah, that. Cause and you can right? catalog your games and have a small stream like, coming in at all times. Yeah, once all the Steam sale, and you can make a bunch of money. Yeah. So yeah, oh, one, like crazy. thousands of people bought Psychonauts today. Weird. That's you know? weird. Yeah, it's ten years later. Hmm. Um, yeah, and and the you know the 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 Kickstarter and the the documentaries and and even um, I mean I feel like this is a, something that that you guys have continued just to push even further is like you know my understanding is at the beginning of Amnesia Fortnite it was like okay a bunch of people in the studio come up with ideas or pitches or a prototype and then you were kind of like the gatekeeper for that like oh I think we're gonna do this one or this one because those sound cool and then you like worked with Humble to be like no actually we're gonna put these in front of yeah. The, the audience and they're going to say oh, I think this and this and this sounds because cool, we had been right? emboldened by that Kickstarter experience you know <laughs> we were like it took our whole relationship with the community to the next level we, we'd had conversations with them before and, like they sent fan art they're talking our forums yeah um, they'd read our webpage and get immediately diverted to title thumbs <laughs> but um, all of a sudden we did that like that was this weird like um well, all of a sudden we really heard like their voice they were like we like making this game happen you know they were excited to be contributing to like making Broken Age happen and um, and we were like wow we can just be in business with these guys instead yeah. of anyone else and and we've since then been just like more and then we started doing like fan meetups like just talking to people and like it's a whole different relationship with our community and just thinking of other ways they can be involved and that's the idea of having Music Fortnite be open to people and letting them vote on it yeah. um and that's been that's been really fun and crazy too. Yeah, and I mean the the, the cool thing I don't know, again from the outside this is my interpretation, but is that I feel like you know there was Brutal Legend and it came out and you know, that was written by you, you know, a Tim Schafer game, and then there was Costume Quest and uh, what's it called? Iron, Stacking Iron Brigade. Iron Brigade, right? Uh, and because that that had two names, so that's why I got Trench. Yes, Trench slash Iron Brigade. <laughs> um, and 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 I felt like you know you you were kind of overseeing and, and other people were, were taking the lead and now after what feels like uh, you know five year four year uh, kind of gap we've had you know Broken Age which is mm-hmm. like the first game that you've written and personally led since Brutal Legend right mm-hmm. uh, at the studio well, connect, uh, Double Fine Happy Action Theater oh that's right yeah. um, don't forget that that's okay. still the best one <laughs> and and you are also am I wrong you're also um, writing Costume Quest 2 no I oh, okay. um, I helped Costume Quest 1 I did some writing on that yeah um, and then I, we're not planning yet for me to help with Cosmo. maybe okay. you never know Depend- yeah. I mean we got Gabe on it and Gabe is and, and Elliot and they were on the first one yeah. and Gabe wrote much of uh, Grubbins the DLC yeah, yeah, yeah. Costume Quest but uh, yeah. Elliot was a writer on one. but with with Broken Age, um, it's it's a it, it's 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 the me locked in a room, yeah, writing, writing everyone waiting for me, and doing days. a and doing a classic you know point and clicky kind mm. of experience more so than anything you've ever made it mm. at Double Fine, yeah. right? Um, so how how are you how are you finding being back in that that headspace that process of scrolling through rooms and yeah. you know making up puzzles? Yeah, I mean it's really great. I mean it's interesting because. Um, I get it, all these people I worked with for ten years. I'm like, ah, hey, let me show you guys what I used to do <laughs> these games. Because we, it's also it, it's it's kind of neat to be back in a zone where I kind of pretend. In some ways, um, you know, 
adventure games were always uh, problematic because they're expensive to make because they don't leverage anything. They don't really leverage. They don't get multiple uses out of many things. They everything's a one-off. All the puzzles yeah. are just scripted to work that one way. Yeah. And there's maybe multiple solutions, but it's all pretty. Every moment is handmade for you by somebody. Yeah. You know, which you can see in the documentary. Like every single moment is like someone who's crafted for you. And that means they're exhausting because you, you make all that, you spend two years on it, and then someone gets it, they download, they play for four hours, they're like, too short. You know, you're like, that's what you're I, telling me. I mean, that's a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the experience we had with Full Throttle was the first time I had that, which is like, we worked on that for a time, a year and a half. That was exhausting. We'd never worked for a year and a half on one game before. It was so long. Because Monk Out was nine months. So, yeah. um, and then crazy. we're like, just ripped through it, and they're like, this is too easy. And I was like, oh, the internet sucks. Who invented this piece of crap? And then... Um, it wasn't... It didn't... There was that wall-kicking puzzle. That took a long time. Yeah. Well, you can talk about that. that was, <laughs> that's an interesting example of how you think a puzzle from one direction, and then someone shows you from another angle. That's a that's a pixel on you. But, and you're like, no, it isn't. It's this great thing where you have to think about how Maureen told you she kicked the wall. She was only four years old, and you forgot about that. You think she's older because you're not thinking about her uh, as a four-year-old because she's a sexual object for you. So if you if you think about it, the fact that she was four, you realize the crack should be much higher on your body. That's how I was thinking about that puzzle. And that just shows you how puzzles are, you know. <laughs> you have to play test things. Yeah. Um, but so, so you guys are... are I made you, up a thing about her being a sexual object. I never thought about that before. So I was just... <laughs> We're talking about that. Well, it's going on the podcast. Yeah, you can't take hot. it back. Yeah. Good character. Um, and by the way, uh, <laughs> you speaking of being uh, hot. pretty hot. Is that what you're saying? I think I said words? like super hot. Yeah. Wasn't that what I said? Yeah. The, the, speaking the, of being the, super hot, the coveralls. Um, <laughs> but but you've uh, you, you've you've had this kind of cast of, of performers that you've worked with. Cat Susie, as I remember, was wow. Wayne. I didn't know you knew the name of the. I'm a fan. And she, she was back also Lita Halford in, uh, in in Brutal, yeah. yeah. Um, and you, you've kind of you've had a number of these actors. That I feel like have kind of followed you through projects. Which are, do you have any of your like old school like LucasArts cohorts in in Broken Edge stuff? I know you got some big yeah, names I mean, in Broken um, Edge, but you know because Chris Brown's worked with us for years, being our voice casting, yeah. casting and directing and producing. And um, she was back on Data Tentacle, you know. Uh, she wasn't the voice director on it, but uh, she was working in the you know in that department. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think. She could probably name actress who'd been with us. Yeah, there was a, a guy. His name is escaping me right now. He was played like Sid or one of the bikers. Oh, okay. Fight on the mine road, and he's been in every since <laughs> in Brutal Legend and um, and uh, yeah, Cassie. that's awesome. Yeah, because the because you know the internet, whoever. Publicists are going to get excited about Elijah Wood and uh, and Jack yeah. Black. I'm like, who? who Nick, who, Nick Jameson. Who like that's the good one. Nick Jameson. He yeah. was a, uh, you know, Doctor Fred, and yeah. uh, he was uh, purple. No, he wasn't purple. He was Doctor Fred, and he was in. Um, he's um, Marshall Dune in Broken Age. Oh, okay. He's been nice. Every, every so yeah, we like because no, it's just. Like, I love that. I don't know. It's great. I, it's like you know they're my they're sister. Just, my sister was the nurse Edna. You push her down the stairs like Nurse Edna, <laughs> and she was also the den mother. And so she did. She do the crazy laugh, the crazy nurse Edna yeah. like yeah. cackle. <laughs> I had to grow up with that. <laughs> yeah, and she's in your games now too. She was yeah. She's Dead Eye Dawn in uh, Broken Edge. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you can't, yeah, you can't work with your family. Why? Why have a game? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. 
So yeah, so so you guys, you got a little more time left on Broken Age Part Two, and then the whole thing is going to be out. And yeah, it's done. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I I, I loved the first part, and I found it really surprising. Uh, the ending, which I won't spoil, I, I will say like I was like, oh, that's weird. Okay, everybody, everybody it. dies. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's going to make that's parts. Weird. Okay. Well, so I finished it, and the, well, okay, I will spoil this. Fuck you. No, uh, don't spoil spoilers. You don't can, spoil you it. can. I'll okay. tell you what's in the there's, attic if you would just. Get there's to the like attic. a minute left in this podcast. When you see that girl all chopped up in the attic, that was horrible in your game. <laughs> um, the kid falls out of the creature. Okay. I you can right. stop. I told you to stop the podcast, uh, and I was like, oh, that, was, that was weird, and I just kind of stopped. And then a few a few hours, a few years later, a few years later, which by the way, this came out about a month and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, but a, a few hours later, I was like, "Oh, because the creature oh, is mean, picking oh, okay. up the, the things with the yeah. arm, and it's and mm-hmm. so like I I the the par- the like literalism of the because par- it mm-hmm. they felt like they were totally separate worlds, and mm-hmm. then at the end, they mean like, oh, their worlds were actually directly mm-hmm. related the entire time." That was really impressive and surprising and cool to me, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what implications that has for part two, and if there's going to be more of the day of the ish kind of like you do something in world A that affects world B, so that the other kid can do a thing that affects maybe you know, maybe it was all hallucination the villain had maybe it's totally possible that it was a dream all along zombie curse <laughs> it's monkey too uh, we will finally discover the secrets oh my god. Uh, well, thank you um, so much. Yes, it'll be done. Oh, oh you are? We'll, so you are going to personally go down a list of everyone who sent me hate tweets, and I will tell them to say, sorry, look, it's done. <laughs> I'm looking forward to playing it, and good luck with the with the rest of uh, finishing it up. And yeah. uh, Again, thank you for having me here thank and, and talking through. Thank you for having me on your, um, your big-time Hollywood podcast. <laughs> well, I, you, I, you promised me it was a big-time Hollywood podcast, right? Well, that's why I have only the biggest stars. Yes, as, thank you. As thank guests. you. Awesome. No, I appreciate your time.